Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual, so when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted, overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, And apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. 
BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Welcome, everyone, to the History of Persia. Episode 6, Introducing Ionia. The last episode ended with King Cyrus himself triumphantly heading east to govern and expand his territory, and western Anatolia, until recently the territory of the conquered Lydians, was erupting into utter chaos. On the western coast, a collection of Greek cities, commonly called Ionia, were resisting Persian control. These were culturally, linguistically, and ethnically Greek cities that had originally functioned like the city-states of the European Greek mainland. Gradually, over the last century, they had come under the sway of the Lydian kings, paying tribute and cooperating with Lydian interests most of the time. When Cyrus invaded Lydia, he encouraged these cities to revolt and help him in his war with the Lydians, but nothing came of those negotiations before the Persians sacked Sardis and captured King Croesus themselves. Afterward, several of the cities tried to negotiate a similar arrangement with the Persians, but Cyrus refused most of them. These cities wanted to ignore the Persians right up until Persia was in control, and only then were they willing to work with the conquerors, and on their terms at that. They wanted to maintain the de facto independence as tribute-paying vassals, but had already angered the king. Cyrus wanted unconditional submission to their new ruler. Thus, most of the Ionian Greeks resisted the Persian occupation and subjugation. But Cyrus, treating these cities as the last pockets of resistance, decided to leave Anatolia in the hands of his subordinates. Cyrus had left two primary administrators in charge of the new satrapy of Lydia. First was Tabalus, a Mede and probably one of Cyrus's military commanders. Tabalus was the satrap, the Persian title for a provincial governor, in charge of the overall governance of the new territories. The second major administrator was a Lydian who pledged to serve the Persians, named Pactuace. Pactuace is often described as the chief civil administrator. Essentially, that means that he was in charge of collecting taxes and tribute on behalf of the Persian administration. And when you think about it, a native tax collector is a kind of ingenious strategy. If Tabalus had been in charge, it would be easy for the populace to develop a feeling that this conquering foreigner was coming in and stealing all of their wealth. But Pactuace was probably somebody who had been part of the Lydian civil administration under Croesus, and could portray a sense of business as usual. A Lydian could come to town and collect taxes that he gave to his Lydian boss, who works in the Lydian capital city, and the only difference is that the guy in the master bedroom of the palace in Sardis then sends a chunk of those taxes to Cyrus, 
but that's far enough removed from the populace at this point as to not engender very much ill will. As far as we know, Cyrus and Tabalus trusted Pactuas to be loyal to his new king in spite of his Lydian heritage. As it happens, that trust was misplaced. Pactuas took the tax revenue and hired mercenaries, bringing them into Sardis and seizing the city to lead a Lydian revolt and try to expel the Persians from Lydia before the end of the first year, sometime around 546 BCE. The Lydians of Sardis and Pactuas' mercenary army forced Tabalus to take refuge in the citadel, the fortified section of the city atop a central hill. Fortunately for the Persian Empire, which is still on very shaky foundations, remember, Tabalus was able to send word back to Media, and Persian reinforcements were sent to restore order before the rebellion could spread beyond Sardis. Cyrus himself did not return. According to Herodotus, the deposed king Croesus advised him against making this rebellion a show of military force. Like I discussed in the last episode, there is a lot of complex debate over whether or not Croesus was really even alive at this point, but Herodotus includes him, and as that's our sole source of information, it's probably best to include Herodotus's version here. Croesus begged Cyrus not to destroy his former capital, but instead disarm the population and enact favorable trade policy. The logic given by Herodotus is that this will turn the people away from war and toward luxury and pleasure. Okay, so that's not exactly sound human psychology or geopolitical practice, and it's almost certainly a product of Herodotus inventing ways in which the so-called barbarian East was soft and decadent in comparison to the strong and powerful Greeks. However, it is generally accepted that Herodotus places his sentiments on top of historical events rather than making up stories. So even if Croesus wasn't the mastermind of Cyrus's strategy here, we can accept that disarmament and favorable trade policy were the Persians' tactics of choice when dealing with the Lydian revolt. Cyrus was probably engaged with other issues at this point, either domestic governance or eastward expansion, so Mazares, a Median military commander, was sent with an army to recapture Sardis and put an end to the rebellions in Anatolia. Unfortunately, we don't know very much about Cyrus's generals beyond the campaigns that Herodotus ascribes to them, but it is likely that Mazares was one of the Median generals who defected to Cyrus during his own revolt against Astyages. That would at least explain why Cyrus trusted him to subdue Lydia without supervision. It's impossible to know why events happened the way they did. We just don't have any information about Mazares and his army, or the situation in Sardis as the Persian force approached. What we do know is that Pactuase abandoned his mercenary forces and fled from the Lydian capital, making for the coast to seek sanctuary in one of the Ionian Greek cities. I really wish we had more details here to figure out what prompted someone who was leading what appears to be a successful rebellion to give up on said rebellion and flee alone. Perhaps he had run out of money to pay his mercenaries, or the Lydian people did not rise up as expected. Maybe Mazaris had a reputation that instilled fear, or Pactuase recognized that he could not expect to hold Sardis against the same army that had just successfully breached the walls a year earlier. We just don't know, and any of those are possibilities with good historical precedent. 
but sadly they are also just my own speculation. Interestingly, when Mazaris arrives in Lydia, the sitting satrap, Tabalus the Mede, vanishes from the record. We don't know if he died on the Acropolis Citadel besieged by Pactuase, if he was relieved of his position because he had failed to maintain control, or even if he just stayed on as satrap, but Mazaris takes control of the military operations in Anatolia, and Herodotus doesn't bother to tell us about Tabalus anymore. It's even possible that both men were present for the campaigns, and Herodotus just condenses them both into Mazaris for the sake of storytelling. Once again, though, this is just educated speculation in lieu of real details. It was at this point that the two revolts in western Anatolia combine into one event. Or more accurately, the Lydian revolt just sort of faded out of existence and Pactuase fled to the Ionian Greeks who were also resisting Persian rule. There's no record of any battle for Sardis, just that the Lydian tax collector turned general fled and Mazaris arrived. So now, all of our focus shifts to the Ionian cities. I could just go through the events that followed as narrative, but the Ionians are going to remain part of our story for a long time, so it's probably worthwhile to introduce them now so that you can actually know who these people are when I bring them up. And fair warning, if you're not familiar with the geography of Greece and Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, I recommend checking out the map that I have posted on the website. Fundamentally, the Ionians were Greeks. If you are at all familiar with ancient Greek history, you are probably familiar with the fact that the idea of ancient Greece is mildly anachronistic. All of the Hellenes, as they called themselves, were never truly unified under a single government or empire for an extended period of time. Mainland Greece, roughly corresponding to the modern nation-state, wasn't even under the control of a single government until Alexander the Great conquered it in the 4th century BCE, about 200 years after the events we're describing now. At this point in history, while the Persians were creating an empire to their east, the Greeks were organized into city-states, where the government was centered on a single city. Some of these cities, like Athens and Sparta, controlled large enough swaths of territory to act more like small countries than city-states in the conventional sense. But the vast majority were cities that only radiated control around their immediate neighbors and countryside. Even in the most powerful and expansive examples, the main city was the absolute center of political life. Political, as it happens, is derived from the Greek word polis. At its most basic, polis was the Greek word for city. But political life and ideology were so intrinsically tied to particular cities, the word polis actually took on a philosophical idea. It was both the city and the more abstract concept of the state itself and all of its people. This became a central part of Greek culture, and people were encouraged to identify with their polis above all else. This is pretty important for understanding how the wider Greek world behaved at this point in time, the mid-6th century BCE, called the Archaic Period by historians who study ancient Greece. This was a time when the Greeks were spreading. Colonies were established from the Crimea, on the north coast of the Black Sea, to Iberia, modern Spain. Just don't envision this as the subject colonies established by modern colonial empires. 
these cities maintained cultural ties to the mother city, but were politically their own poles. On the other hand, the early Greeks of the Bronze Age, who we call the Mycenaeans, had long since settled the islands of the eastern Mediterranean in the hazy history of the Bronze Age. Ionia falls into neither of these categories. The Greek cities of western Anatolia were founded in the Dark Age of Ancient Greece. After the Bronze Age collapse we discussed in episode 1, Greece went through a period of turmoil, violence, upheaval, and general socio-technological regression. Monumental architecture, complex agriculture, international trade, it all abruptly ceased. By the time written records resumed, there were already Greek cities on the Anatolian coast, probably established by people migrating there in the aftermath of the Mycenaean collapse, and the poles of Anatolia were fully formed by the 9th century BCE. Thus, at this point, Ionia was as much a part of Greece as the mainland, certainly as much as the surrounding islands. Ionia even became the cradle of Greek literature. They were the closest connected to the Phoenicians and their alphabet, and the literary traditions of the Near East. So, people like Homer and Hesiod were both Ionian. Homer, of course, is the supposed author of the Iliad, the Odyssey, and several other epic poems. There is lots of historical debate about whether or not a historical individual actually composed all of the works ascribed to Homer, but the first ancient Greek author is said to have been born on the Ionian island of Chios, and the Homeric poems are written in the Ionic dialect of ancient Greek. Hesiod was the author of such pieces as Theogony, the Greek creation myth, and he too was born in Ionia and actually moved to the mainland, but like Homer, his poems were written in a form of Ionic Greek. In the 7th and 6th centuries BCE, Ionia also became the home of Greek philosophy, once again influenced by Eastern sources. Many of the great pre-Socratic philosophers originated in Ionia, and many were still active at the time of Cyrus's conquests. That's pre-Socratic as in pre-Socrates, who would rise to prominence in the 5th century, and whose teachings heavily influenced later Greek philosophers. Also, bear in mind, when discussing philosophy in ancient Greece, that it was not exclusively the university subject that we have today, discussing abstract ideas of ethics, the meaning of life, etc. Philosopher is a combination of the ancient Greek word philos, meaning lover, and sophia, meaning knowledge. An ancient philosopher was literally a knowledge lover. They did study the metaphysical ideas that you would see in a modern philosophy classroom, but they also were the ones who studied math and science in ancient Greece. These were the individuals who pioneered ideas of logic and reasoning, and attempting to find a logical explanation for natural phenomena, rather than pinning everything on divine will and intervention. Among their ranks were Thales, who pioneered the idea that everything in the universe stems from a single source and is credited with being the first Greek philosopher, Hippocrates, famous for his study of medicine and the namesake of the Hippocratic Oath still taken by medical professionals today, and Xenophanes, my personal favorite, who was extremely critical of common Greek attitudes about religion and culture, also an entirely different person from Xenophon who I talked about last time. Try to keep those separate. Finally, there is one last element of Ionia that I want to address. 
despite what I've been saying this whole time, the region of Ionia was not entirely Ionian, which is confusing, I know, but hopefully we can make sense of this. Despite not being entirely Ionian, the cities I'm talking about were all Greek polis. You see, between identifying with the polis, the city-state, and the broader identity of all ancient Greeks as Hellenes with a shared culture and language was a middle level. The best words I really have for it are tribe or ethnicity. Neither of those options is really great. The Greek word normally translated this way is genos, which was borrowed into Latin as genus or genus, which is where we get the taxonomical term genus, as in genus species, i.e. humans are homo sapiens, genus homo, species sapiens. We also get words like genealogy, the study of families, and, and genetics from that same genos root word. So you can see it obviously has some kind of connotation about family. And indeed, the Greeks tried to trace most of their population back to a small handful of common ancestors. Those ancestors were thus the root of all of the different Greek genoi. At a glance, it may seem like tribe would be a good word for it, but that gives a sense of primitiveness and political organization which isn't accurate. Early modern translators used race, but of course that's a loaded term today. Ethnicity is probably the best word for it, an abstract idea incorporating shared culture, ancestry, and language. The Greeks didn't really think of other peoples as having that kind of subgrouping, but certainly thought about themselves that way. I'll probably keep using ethnicity for groupings like this, but just understand that it wasn't necessarily conceived that way by other ancient peoples. In ancient Greece, there were at least three basic ethnic groups more depending on how you count. Modern scholarship primarily understands this in terms of language because we can easily see the differences in writing. Of course, they all spoke the same basic Greek language and were mutually intelligible, but each had a distinct dialect with spelling and pronunciation differences. We're already familiar with the Ionians, at least in concept. They inhabited the southern half of the western Anatolian coastline, as well as the Ring of Islands and most of the coastline of the Aegean Sea between mainland Greece and modern Turkey. Attic Greek, the primary dialect of the city of Athens, is sometimes lumped in as a sub-dialect of Ionic. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. 
And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. But it was just different enough that it can sometimes also count as its own dialect. The Ionian cities of Anatolia formed an alliance called the Ionian League to provide mutual defense when it became necessary in the 7th century. The second group is Aeolic Greek. On mainland Greece, this was the ethnic group that inhabited Boeotia, largely controlled by the city of Thebes, and Thessaly, a region in northeastern Greece comprised of plains surrounded by mountains. Aeolic was also spoken on the island of Lesbos, and made up the second largest Greek ethnic group in Anatolia. The northern half of the western coast, which I've been lumping in with Ionia so far, was sometimes called Aeolis, because it was the most significant concentration of Aeolic poles, twelve cities that banded together when it suited them in an alliance called the Dodecapolis, meaning the twelve cities. Most of these were conquered outright by Croesus decades before the arrival of the Persians, and incorporated into Lydia proper, with the exception of Smyrna, which joined the Ionian League. However, several took Croesus's defeat as an opportunity to reassert their independence. The third major group, the largest and supposedly the youngest, is Doric Greek. This was the primary ethno-linguistic identity of Western Greece and the Peloponnesian Peninsula, including the Spartans. There were so many subgroups that there could be drastic variation within the Doric category, including Macedonian, which was not always mutually intelligible with other Greek dialects. It would not be unreasonable to say that this group should be broken down further, but this is also how ancient authors described the Greek dialects, so I'll stick with it for now. The Dorians were supposedly the Greek-speaking invaders who entered Greece from without during the Bronze Age collapse and the succeeding Dark Age. Naturally, this mythology led to occasional enmity with other Greek ethnic groups. The only problem with that story is that there's not very much evidence for an outside invasion of Greece at that time. The idea that there was this large tribe of Greek speakers who weren't part of the rest of Greece is a little bit odd, but it's not unreasonable to think that outsiders came in and adopted Greek with some of their own twists, and that created a new dialect. But again, very little evidence for it. More recently, it has been suggested that Doric was in fact the lower class language of the Greek Bronze Age, and simply rose to prominence in the Dark Age as a distinct dialect. There were also a small number of Doric sites outside of mainland Greece. The largest was the island of Crete, but a small number of cities were founded in southwest Anatolia, just north of where the peninsula starts to curve eastward as well as Rhodes, the large island off the coast, and the other Dodecanese islands. The six major cities of this grouping were called the Hexopolis, 
they resisted Cyrus's initial conquest alongside the Ionian League. So that, a mess of independent but allied cities with distinct and complex cultures, is the scene for the next stage of Persian conquest. The rebel Pactuase fled first to the Aeolic city of Kume, which in English looks like it should be said Sim or Seem, or something like that. It's usually spelled C-Y-M-E. Anyway, Kume was a port city, wealthy, with access to the sea, but not exactly prepared for an impromptu siege when Pactuace showed up. The general Mazaris pursued Pactuace to Kume and offered the city an ultimatum. Give us this one civil servant, and we won't sack your city. So the Cumaeans did what any sensible Greek would do in this situation, and consulted an oracle. Not the oracle at Delphi, she was too far away for a spur-of-the-moment decision like this. No, they went to a different oracle, the oracle of Apollo at Bronchidae, a city with a temple to the god, a city in southern Ionia. But there was some confusion— the oracle seemed to give conflicting answers the first few times she was asked, but finally arrived at an order from the god Apollo himself, remember, to hand Pactuace over to the Persians. If it seems weird to you that an oracle of Apollo would tell Greeks to aid the Persians, you're not wrong. We know that Croesus had been a big patron of oracles, and Cyrus was a fan of promoting continuity in conquered territory. Oh, and the Persians are later known for financially supporting several oracles, including this one. It has been speculated, since Herodotus himself, that the Persians bribed the temple at Bronchidae to tell the Cumaeans to side with them, which would explain the confusion over the oracle's initial directions. Now, the Cumaeans weren't thrilled with this situation, even if it was ordered by an oracle. So while negotiating with the Persians on one hand, they allowed Pactuace to board a ship and flee to the island of Lesbos, which is located just off the Aeolian coast. But the Persians had no navy to pursue him out there, but they did have even more bribes to hand out. So Persian representatives went out to Lesbos and offered the island a sizable payment in exchange for the Lydian fugitive, to which the Lesbians happily agreed. Yes, that's the word for people from Lesbos. Yes, they're related. No, that's not what we're going to do today. Pactuace, though, caught wind that he had been sold out and fled again, this time to another Greek island, Chios, due south of Lesbos. Fortunately for Mazaris, and less so for Pactuace, the Persians had something that the Chionoi wanted, territory on mainland Anatolia. A small amount of coastline was given over to the island, and Pactuace was captured and handed over. Herodotus doesn't really tell us what happened to the rebel after that, but I think it's safe to say that I'd be surprised if he made it back to Sardis alive. As much as I've been focusing on chasing Pactuace, Mazari's role in this was mostly a passive one. He'd been busy with other activities for most of this time, namely bringing the Ionian Greek cities to heel. The city of Miletus, already had ties to Media, and opened its doors willingly to the Persians, though not without a contingent of anti-Persian aristocrats fleeing the city, 
including many of the notable pre-Socratic philosophers who I talked about earlier in this episode. Oh, and remember how Croesus had called on the Spartans for aid last time? But they got distracted with their own war back in Greece? Yeah, they showed up. For like a minute. The Ionian cities had called for their aid, presumably because they had shown willingness to aid Croesus against the same enemy. Well, some Spartans turned up. Herodotus tells us that they told the Persians not to harm any Greeks, with presumably some stern finger-wagging, and then watched. Warning the Persians is probably a detail added by Herodotus after the Greco-Persian Wars, but a few Spartan mercenaries or observers turning up isn't out of the question. But once again, actual conflict between Sparta and Persia was avoided. The first city to fall to violence at Mizari's hands was Prien, which was sacked, and Herodotus tells us its citizens were enslaved, which is an interesting and possibly inaccurate detail. The sacking happened, no doubt, but the enslavement actually jumps out. It was standard practice for conquering empires before and since the Persians, and doesn't seem out of place at a glance. I'll discuss this at length in the future, but the Persians almost never used slaves. Soldiers defeated in battle were used as servants and forced labor, but enslaving a whole civilian population is distinctly out of place. It's possible that this policy hadn't really set in yet, but the other option is that Herodotus just gets this one wrong. We'll see that the historian goes on to say that the Persians would threaten all of Greece with slavery during the Greco-Persian Wars. That is obviously hyperbole, elevating the idea of being subject to a Persian king to a status equal with enslavement. That may also be what Herodotus is doing here, in the case of Prien. The Persian army progressed into the plains surrounding the Maander River, and approached the city of Magnesia. The Persians raided the surrounding villages, then sacked the city, apparently with little difficulty. But now we must part ways with Mazaris the Mede. In a tale as old as warfare itself, this general anticlimactically died of disease. Illness was common in army camps and has taken leaders left and right all throughout human history. Word of Mazaris' death and a progress update for the campaign in Ionia was sent east to Cyrus. Once again, we have no record of why the decision was made, just that it was. But Cyrus sent Harpagus to Anatolia to take up the reins of the campaign. This is the same Harpagus who organized the defection of Median generals to Cyrus in his first campaign, and who advised the king on his first fight in Lydia. Just based on the stories that followed, though, I think Cyrus wanted his best, or at least favorite, general to get in there and clean up this Greek mess. Harpagus swept through Ionia with the same ultimatum at each city. Surrender, or face the general who conquered Ecbatana and Sardis. Cyrus was the king, and has his own share of military successes, but Harpagus is treated as the experienced tactician and innovator. Herodotus gives us surprisingly few details of the following sieges, beyond telling us that Harpagus employed shocking, but also shockingly obvious new tactics. He built huge ramps by piling dirt up against the walls of a city he was besieging, until there was a ramp tall enough to allow his men to climb over the walls and into the city. Which, in and of itself, actually sounds like it would be ridiculous if you were defending a city and realized what was happening. 
and then terrifying when you realized that it was actually going to work. So we don't have much in the way of dramatic battle stories, but we do know what the Ionians did when they didn't put up a fight, and that implies that Harpagus was a terrifying opponent in actual combat. The cities of Phokia and Teos both chose exile over death, not just for the aristocrats and the merchants, but for the whole population of both cities. They loaded onto ships and fled to colonies in the west, settling in Corsica, Italy, and Chios, amongst other sites. A.T. Olmsted, whose book The History of the Persian Empire has been a go-to source for this narrative for about 70 years, suggested that the Greek-speaking islands on the Ionian coast also submitted at this time, but the choice of the Phocaean refugees to settle there makes it kind of unlikely. The Persians still had no navy, so why in the world would an island surrender? More than likely, this is one of the many, and I mean many, places where this 71-year-old books has started to show its age and is contradicted by recent scholarship. Finally, we get to Knidos, the future home of the historian Theseus. This was the only Dorian city of the Hexopolis to put up significant resistance. Situated on a peninsula, they realized that the Greek-speaking islands were safe from Persian conquests. So they drew up plans to dig a wide canal through their peninsula and become an island. To just straight up cut themselves off. It would have been a huge undertaking. And so, like any sane Greek, they consulted an oracle. And not just the local oracle. This called for the big guns, and the nearby oracle at Bronchidae wasn't looking so favorable these days. Knidos sent an embassy to the oracle at Delphi while they made plans to start digging the canal. And then, the oracle at Delphi, the greatest and most reliable oracle of all, told them not to dig, but to surrender to the Persian advance. Remember how Cyrus picked up Croesus's tab at Bronchidae? Well, he also probably started sending some significant funds out to Delphi too, to ensure that any augury would go in his favor there. So once again, a Greek oracle told the Greeks to surrender to the Persians. And there you have it, with the exception of a few islands, all of the territory, peoples, and resources formerly controlled by Croesus of Lydia were firmly under Cyrus the Great and the Persian Empire. Harpagus was made the new satrap of Lydia, ruling from Sardis. This was a huge development in the history of the Persian Empire. It set the stage for future conflicts with the Greek world, gave them an outlet on the coast and access to maritime trade, and demonstrated that they could defeat and conquer a major regional power that they weren't already a part of. It also led to the first imperial currency when Cyrus adopted the Lydian Cresid as the empire's official coinage system, thus bringing domestic and international trade under the auspices of centralized administrators. This set up Persia to be an empire, rather than a kingdom that received tribute payments like most of the other places we call empires up to this point in history. And they weren't even done yet. Harpagus just kept rolling on. He levied troops from the conquered Ionian cities in the first example of a Persian army employing that tactic. It provided bodies for the army and encouraged good behavior from their homes while the strongest garrisons were in the field. If they rose up, 
all of their fighting-aged men would be executed far from home. The newly strengthened Persian army marched south, beyond the Lydian borders, to Lycia. Lycia was a small kingdom, or collection of city-states, on the southern coast of Anatolia, in the southwest corner of the peninsula. These were native Anatolians in language and culture, speaking Luwian rather than Greek. They were one of the last independent Neo-Hittite kingdoms I discussed back in episode 1. Most of the cities in Lycia surrendered peacefully, with the exception of Xanthos, a major cultural and inland commerce center. The Xanthians, according to Herodotus, were defeated by the Persian advance and retreated to the city, where they burned their possessions on their Acropolis, killed their wives, children, and elders, and then died to a man in the battle with the Persians afterwards. It's not the only such story in history, but they sound crazy every time. Archaeology has revealed that there was a major fire on the Acropolis around this time, but the rest is up to us to decide. I will say that Xanthos did become a major regional center again under Persian control. That secured the last of Anatolia, but Harpagus had one more feather that he wanted to add to his hat. According to Herodotus, he invaded Babylonian territory, marched down the Mediterranean coast, and conquered the Phoenician cities. There's absolutely no detail given here, and it's hard to tell if it's true because all of Babylonia fell to Cyrus within a few years. If it is true, Harpagus's conquest of Phoenicia was the opening salvo of blatant Persian hostility with the Babylonians. Now, for the last part of this episode, I want you to imagine this like a comic book panel. The bottom of one page has Harpagus standing in a newly occupied Phoenician city on the Mediterranean, and when you turn the page, you have a little box that says, Meanwhile, somewhere in Iran, and it's Cyrus himself overlooking a rocky plateau. And then the book ends, and the next issue has Cyrus in Babylon, because that's all we have regarding what Cyrus was doing during this time in the latter half of the 540s. He was somewhere out east, and Herodotus tells us that he brought Parthia and Bactria in northeastern Iran and Afghanistan under imperial control, but that's about it. Presumably, he also did some routine governing of his kingdom from Ecbatana and Anshan. Maybe he even got his plan started for a new capital city during this time too, but we have nothing to really go on here. The only confirmable administrative task we know was taken care of during this time is that Cyrus planned the conquest of Babylon, because in 539 BCE, the Persians marched into the heart of ancient Mesopotamia, the core of Near Eastern politics and culture since the literal dawn of written history, and that ancient cradle of civilizations would fall significantly faster than the disparate city-states of Ionia. But I think that is where we will leave things for now. The Persian military has completed its most grueling conquest to date, and Cyrus is prepared to take the greatest prize in the ancient world. Until next time, you can find more information about the show, a bibliography, maps, and everything else at the historyofpersiapodcast.wordpress.com. 
New episodes will be available there or wherever it is you get your favorite podcasts. You can contact me with suggestions and feedback either on the website or at historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show today or you're excited about what comes next, tell a friend and share on social media to get the word out. On Facebook, I'm the History of Persia Podcast, and on Twitter, you can find me at History of Persia. And of course, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.